Good morning. My name is Jason Tyrell. I'm one of the elders here at Joy. I have the privilege of uh, bringing the word to us this morning. John, I promise I won't mess with your fancy toys, but I can't see the Lazarus family. Um, if you want to, you can turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. If you're using, there are Bibles in the chairs in front of you. If you're using them, it's page 222, and you can open up to it and then listen to me for a few minutes before we read. This, what I'm about to say, by the way, just, just for clarity's sake, is not the beginning of Ruth chapter 1. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. Those are the words of Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations, chapter 3. God must hate me. Have you ever thought that as you pondered your lot in life? For some reason, he seems content to make the way hard. Painful at times. Bitter. Why would God, we come, we worship this God, God is love, right? Why would God, who is love, deal with his people in such a way? And this morning we start a four-week series through the book of Ruth, and some of these questions seem to come to the forefront right out of the gate. Ruth takes place in the days when the judges ruled in Israel. The judges were civil and military leaders who temporarily took places of authority in the nation of Israel. Israel had taken the promised land under the command of Joshua. They had promised at the end of the book of Joshua to keep their covenant with the Lord and to walk in His ways and to do what He said, and they did not do so. And in the book of Judges, we see the fruit of that. While the book of Judges is filled with many stories of God's mercy and kindness toward undeserving people, the phrase that defines the book of Judges is what? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Ruth takes us from the bird's eye view of the book of Judges and zooms in on a family. A family that helps us ask and answer some really important questions. How do we reckon with bitter providence from the hand of God? Can we trust that He is doing good even when we don't see it at the time? Does the Lord love even the foreigner and the outcast? Does He love the worshiper of other gods? What does sacrificial love look like? And in the zooming in on this particular family, we get to zoom back out on the big picture and ask questions like, 
Will God remain faithful to his end of the covenant in spite of his people's unfaithfulness? Are God's chosen people becoming unchosen? Has he abandoned his people? I mean, it's so practical for us today. We go through things in our lives as believers in Christ, right? That make us say, I think God either hates me, like I'm the target for him, or he's not here, or he's not real. We're forced to ask and answer these questions by the book of Ruth and be reminded, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. We don't know with certainty who the author of Ruth is, uh, though early in verse 1, you're going to see it's, it's pretty clear that it wasn't written at the time of, of this happening. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. It's a call back to a former time. Um, when, and it seems like the judges no longer ruled when this was written. It makes a lot of sense to me. This is not Scripture. This is just my pondering, my studies, uh, speculation. But, but I can envision a few generations later that one of Solomon's children comes to him and says, Dad, how did our family get to be the family that's ruling over the whole nation of Israel? How is that possible? Again, this is speculation, but I think it was probably written around the time just post-David, early King Solomon, somewhere in that, in that time. Where, and Solomon's saying, I have got a story to tell you. You are never going to believe how our family got here. And it begins, well, this portion of it, in the book of Ruth. You'll never believe the circumstances that the Lord uses and the people the Lord uses to accomplish His purposes. And for us gathered here today, Joy Community Fellowship, on this side of the cross, on this side of the empty tomb of Jesus, we can marvel all the more that this Moabite woman, Ruth, who has a book of the Bible named after her, right? This insignificant Moabite woman, she's going to get mentioned in the New Testament too. From the line by which the Lord Jesus came. That's an amazing thought. So for this morning, we're going to read chapter 1. And, uh, and we're going to consider three things. I thought about why do, why do, we, why do I always do three, th- why is it three things? Uh, and I, I think that pastors often have three points in their sermons. I, I was pondering this this morning. It's God's gracious way of restraining us from saying everything we want to. Uh, <laughs> I've got to just say three things this morning. I can't say the 500 things that I want to. So the three things we're going to consider this morning from Ruth chapter 1 are uh, bitter providence, costly love, and a harvest of hope. Bitter providence, costly love, and a harvest of hope. So let's read chapter 1 of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, 
the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned. And Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law daughter with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray? Heavenly Father, I have nothing to offer apart from what your spirit can give. So I pray that my words would be faithful to your word and that our hearts would be receptive to hear. And, and, and it may be that this particular passage falls on fertile soil because we, we sympathize with the plight of Naomi. Maybe we are walking through something right now. Father, I just pray that you would help us to think rightly, think your thoughts after you, help us to see your great goodness to us, Encourage our hearts, strengthen our souls. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ruth begins with a famine in Israel. And we're introduced to this family in Bethlehem, the family of Elimelech. 
Bethlehem means, you know what Bethlehem means while I get a drink? Bethlehem means house of bread. There was no bread in the house of bread. The famine was physical and spiritual. We've already talked about what what life was like in the time of the judges. The chosen people had gone astray. And Elimelech takes his wife Naomi and his two sons and they move to Moab to live and find food. And Moab was across the Dead Sea to the southeast of Bethlehem. Uh, And more importantly, Moab had been a perpetual thorn in the side of Israel. Over and over and over. Moab was born of the wicked union of Lot and one of his daughters in Genesis chapter 19. That's where the nation came from. A side note, as we go through Ruth, many things in Ruth, and I'm not going to have time to point them all out, there are many times throughout the book of Ruth where the reader is invited to remember something that happened in the book of Genesis and consider, will Ruth, will Naomi, will Boaz act more nobly than their forefathers and, and, and ancestors did? So, so we have this Ruth the Moabite, right? Right there. We're starting out of the gate. She comes from the line of people who come from this wicked union of Lot and his daughter. This nation that had been perpetually a thorn in the side of Israel, worshipers of foreign gods, most prominently uh, Molech and Chemosh, very well known for sacrificing their children to the gods. Israel had oftentimes throughout their history intermingled in a way that was displeasing to the Lord with the Moabites. But, With all that said, we should note here, there is no commentary from the author on whether this move to Moab was good or bad. There is no judgment of it being sinful or wicked. They were trying to get food. Uh, We can't make inferences with a lack of info. Uh, And if this family is resigned to living in Moab, we also get no commentary on whether it was good or bad that they married these two women. Because we don't get any commentary on the spiritual state of both of them. Well, we will on Ruth later on. We don't, we don't know. These are things that we're not going to dive into. But we know it was not ideal. And we know it's the result of sin ultimately. Elimelech and his family had moved to Moab for the long term. And the hand of all this, the hand of God in all of this, becomes really clear as the story progresses. While they're in Moab, Elimelech dies. And you're invited briefly, reader of Ruth, to take comfort because though Elimelech died, Ruth or Naomi still has two sons. Briefly. Quickly, we see two more tragic blows. After 10 years, both marriages remain childless. It's another Genesis callback. Sarah and Abraham received the promise, and 10 years into that promise, they made a decision that God wasn't keeping his promises. We got to act. It was a bad idea. So these two families have no children, and now another tragedy. Both of Naomi's sons die. And no comment, we don't know why, we don't know how. Both of her sons are dead. And we are left with Naomi 
in a foreign land, a widow, childless, grandchildless, unprotected, and basically hopeless. Naomi is a woman dealing with a bitter providence from God. Aside from the obvious pain of losing dearly loved ones, no one was left to carry on the family line of Elimelech. And we, we've lost sight of that a little bit in our culture. There are still some families who, who take that really seriously. In our culture, it's not as serious. It would be the ultimate disgrace at that time for the family line of Elimelech to be extinguished. There was a shame associated with that that Naomi would carry. As a widow in a foreign land, Naomi had no protection. She was on the lowest rung of society's ladder, and she makes clear from her own words in verses 11 to 13 that she believes that she is too old to get married and too old to have children. She is destitute and unwanted. And the kicker is that she knows the ultimate source of her troubles is the Lord. In verse 13, she says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. In verse 20, she says to the women of Bethlehem, who are so excited to see her as she comes back home after 10 years, and she says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? A bitter hand was dealt, and it made this woman bitter herself. What would you say to Naomi if you heard her say these things? What would you say to Naomi? What do you say to your own soul when the Lord deals you a bitter hand? Maybe you think it would be best to tell Naomi and yourself that God is not in this. This isn't him. He didn't do this. He's not, he doesn't even know about it. It was a surprise to him. Has to. I've got to know that he's loving, so I'll, just, I'll act like he's not sovereign. Of course, that would be untrue. But maybe it provides a temporary sense of relief for you. Okay, I don't have to, it's not God's fault. God didn't do this. It's, it's difficult, is it not, to deal with these simultaneous realities? God is sovereign over all. Amen? God is good. Amen? God does not do evil. Amen? And yet, Terrible things happen under the provident watch of a sovereign and good God. Do you struggle with this? Do you find yourself either accusing God of evil, absolv absolving Him of sovereign control, or resigning yourself to the reality, quote-unquote, that God must hate me? Because I think that's where Naomi is in this chapter, right? God, God hates me. For some reason, he hates me. 
He's mad at me. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you deal with that? I go through what I go through because God is mad at me. I'm not seeing any reactions. That could either mean, yeah, you're, you're hitting the nail pretty good uh, on the head and I don't want to talk about it. Uh, or no, I've never had that experience in my life. I think it's number one. <laughs> I hope it's not. But I want to stop here and say a couple things. This is really important. God should be mad at us, right? God should be mad at all of us. We violate his will all the time. You know it, right? He made us and everything else. He graciously set us into his creation. He called us to find joy in honoring him, in trusting him. We were made to worship Him and find joy in that. We were made to rejoice in the worship of His great name. He told us how to live in a way that results in joy and blessing, and yet we have gone our own way. We always think we know better than He does. Always. We are not going to let some Creator shape our lives. We're God's. We rule everything, and we would do a better job of ruling everything than He does. And so the real mystery is why any of us would experience anything good at all ever in our lives. And I'm going to engage the pain and the bitterness in a moment, but it is important for us to give ourselves a reality check because we can get into a pity party and be like, I can't believe how good I deserve to have it and how bad I have it when the reality is we should constantly marvel at how bad we deserve to have it and how amazingly good we have it. Right? We get so mad when He allows pain in our lives, but we do well to consider that every bit of blessing is mercy. That in Christ, God is not angry with us. God's not mad. At, God has the right to be mad at us. He's not mad at us in Christ. He loves us. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face, right? That is amazing mercy. With that said, Naomi's pain is real. Her prospects are dim. Her story forces us to confront what lies within us. She wants to get her daughter's-in-law as far away from her as possible because she thinks she's cursed by God, right? She's like, get, get away from me. Stay in Moab. Have you thought about the insanity of what she's telling her daughter's-in-law to do? Yes, in one sense, she, she, it's an act of love from Naomi. She wants them to, to move on with their lives. But there's a real key word in that, that phrase, what she's telling her daughters-in-law as they're having this interaction in verses 8 to 14, right? She says, go back to your mother's house and go back to what else? Your gods. She, she tells her daughters-in-law, go back to your gods. My God is angry with me. Go back to your gods. Naomi knows and believes that Yahweh is the only God, the one true God. 
Yet she tells these women that life would be better worshiping their false gods than being with her. That's pretty crazy. That if you come with me, girls, all you have to look forward to is more bitterness and more pain. Like Naomi, you and I, we are not really good at interpreting our own circumstances. We go through painful times and we go through joyful times and we think we understand them, but very often we are very wrong. If we had the ability to see the ends that the Lord had in mind in all that we go through, do you think we'd find more strength to walk through trials? Like, this is where it's going to end up. Well, we do, by the way, have that ability. But, even on an earthly sense, like, do you ever think, listen, if, God, if you would just tell me what's going to come of this here on this earth, I'll trust you. Do you ever think that? Or want to know that? Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are called to have every bit as much confidence and hope in times of pain as someone who knows all the outcomes. Not because you know what is going to happen, but because you know who is in control. Because you know the who. Yahweh's name is used over and over and over in the book of Ruth. And that is where our confidence must lie in him can we say along with habakkuk though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls larry pointed this out well at the beginning he's saying even if i lose everything yet i will rejoice in the lord I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Can we say with Job, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Can we say with Jeremiah, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Can we say with Jesus, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The Lord is trustworthy even when, especially when, we don't understand His ways. We almost never understand His ways. Uh, Jeff says it all the time. It's a saying he said, I heard him say it 20 years ago, and it sticks in my you know, God is doing a thousand things in everything, right? You have no idea what God is doing most of the time. Is that true? And in the not knowing, he is not to be put on trial or called into question. Yet far too often we have done so because we don't get it. Because we don't understand and He owes us an explanation. And rather than crying out in pain-soaked faith, He doesn't say, Naomi, you're sad. What's wrong with you? Get it together. 
right? But there is a way to cry out in our pain that is full of faith. I don't get it. I don't get it. But I trust you. And when I'm asking the question of, but how can... You say that. You just you talked about this bitter lot in Naomi's life, and then you just go to write like, why don't you trust God? That's a weird jump to make. He seems to be doing bad things in her life. Every time you, you have this privilege, brother and sister in Christ, every time we get to drive our eyes right back to the cross of Christ, right? He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things, right? I am convinced, convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. When, when Paul said nothing, what do you think he meant? Something? Not a thing. You, believer in Christ, are loved by God with an everlasting love. Even when the providences of this life are bitter, it is not an evidence that he doesn't love you. He already told you he loves you. When you doubt that he loves you, you look to the cross and you look to the empty tomb and you say, my goodness, he loves an undeserving person like me. That he would make provision for my eternal salvation, my forgiveness of sins, and my, my eternal joy in him, even though I've rebelled against him. He did this at great cost. He gave his own son for us. What good thing is he going to withhold? And so now... I receive the providences of God and I say, well, I don't understand them. I don't get it. By the way, you should say the same thing when you're, when you're experiencing great times of prosperity, right? Like, this is amazing. I don't, I don't get it. Why are you being so good to me? But when we receive these things from his hand, we can say, I don't understand and it, it hurts. I'm in pain, but I trust you, Lord. You've given me great reasons to trust you. Uh, okay. Sorry, I lost my place there for a second. I have a lot more that I'd like to say on that, but we're going to move on. I'm moving to point two, which is much briefer. I, th I think the theme of chapter one is the bitterness of Naomi, just the bitter providence of God from her perspective. But in the midst of that, in the midst of this bitter providence, chapter 1, along with the whole book of Ruth, shows us steadfast love. There is this Hebrew word that I will not pronounce properly. Correct? Chesed. 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 Thank you, Larry. Chesed. Hesed love speaks of steadfast, sacrificial love toward another. Do you see that in this chapter? Steadfast, sacrificial love toward someone else? What a beautiful love we see in the interaction between Naomi and Orpah and Ruth, right? As, as misguided as Naomi is, as she's trying to send them back, 
She's doing it because she really loves them. And she's telling them, you're my daughters-in-law, and you have more than fulfilled your duty as my daughters-in-law. Go back. Start your own life again. I'm, it's too late for me. But you go back. The picture you're supposed to get is that they, they're on the journey from Moab to, to Israel. And probably sometime around when they're about to be leaving Moab, Naomi turns to them and says, go. Go back. And, and Orpah says, well, they both first say, no, we're going to go with you. She says again, go back. There's nothing for you. And so Orpah, it says, kissed her. It means like she, she said her goodbyes. And I want to be really clear about this. We are not meant to look at Orpah and say, wow, what a failure of a daughter-in-law she was. She had fulfilled her duty. Orpah in the book of Ruth stands as the example of what pretty much anybody would do in that situation. She is the one who did what we all probably would have done. Ruth stands as the example of hesed love. She'll be one of many examples of steadfast, sacrificial love. Let's read those verses again, verses 16 and 17. It's beautiful. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I, will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth the Moabite says, Naomi, for the rest of your life, but not just the rest of your life, Naomi, for the rest of my life, I will be an Israelite. I will take shelter under the wings of Yahweh, your God, and now my God. I am not looking to get anything out of you. Only to serve you and care for you. You entrust yourself to Yahweh and so will I. I will not leave you. I will never leave you. I'll be buried where you're buried. Ruth willingly consigns herself to life as a foreigner in a foreign land. She has no expectations of a husband or children. She wants to serve her mother-in-law. There are a ton of things I want to say in all this, but because you may want to leave here at some point today, I'm going to point out a few things. First, note how Ruth's commitment to Naomi foreshadows the call of Christ to us, right? So, so Jesus says to those who would come to him, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. Sacrificing all to follow Jesus. Sacrificing boasting in self. Sacrificing our self-sufficiency. Sacrificing our self-righteousness. Sacrificing our self-salvation. Self-glorification. Seeing them all as rubbish compared to knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. 
This is the call of Jesus on us. And, and Ruth foreshadows that by saying, I'm going to leave everything to serve you, Naomi, and to take shelter under the wings of your God. That's Jesus' call upon us today, by the way. He gave His life so that we would know real life, real joy, real hope. And He calls us to lay our lives and our pursuits down, turn from them, trust in Him, and follow. That's His call upon our life. Ruth gave everything up to show love to Naomi. She went above and beyond what would be expected and, and in that way mirrored or foreshadowed Jesus, right? Who left His heavenly glory and came and dwelt among us as a servant. As a servant for us. He is the ultimate example of Hesed love. Sacrificial, costly love. time permitted, we could read Philippians 2, 1 through 11, the call to sacrificial love in the body of Christ, looking at the example and the empowerment that comes from Christ's emptying himself for us. But let's not let this sacrificial love finally land. I don't, I don't want it to land on Ruth because Ruth in this chapter becomes a recipient of the steadfast love of God. She decides to take shelter under the wings of the one true God. She has no idea what's coming up. I don't know if you've read the rest of the chapters, but some good stuff's going to happen. She has no idea of any of that good stuff. She, she is sacrificing. But ultimately, Ruth will be the recipient of a great love from the Lord. As much as Ruth is coming to care for Naomi, all the more the Lord is caring for her. The Lord sent her a witness, right? The Lord sent a family to Moab so that Ruth might know about the God of Israel in truth. That's mercy. That's grace. Which brings us to one more thing about this. We need to rejoice as we read the book of Ruth in the fact that God's grace is available to the most needy, the least deserving, and the outcast, and the foreigner, and the sojourner, the one we label too dirty, too, too sinful, too far beyond hope, whatever it may be, the Moabites would have fallen into that category. These people sacrifice their own children. And God so loved the Moabite that he sent Elimelech's family in there. Jesus said in John 6.37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And this Moabite was going to find the grace of God in her work or in her service. None is too wicked. None is too lost. None is too not like us that the grace of God cannot reach them. We need to be reminded of that. 
There's none beyond the hope of Christ. Ruth shines as a testimony of steadfast love and sacrifice while shining that light even brighter on the glory and wonder of Yahweh's steadfast love and sacrificial love. And finally this morning, briefly, we come to the conclusion of chapter 1. Naomi returns to Bethlehem after 10 years absent. I don't know if you read this passage and you see like, well, the whole town hears that Naomi is coming back, right? I, I don't think so highly of myself that like if I left Glassboro for 10 years, you know, and, and word around town is Jason's coming back. And they're like, oh, okay, who? Yeah. Like what is going on here that the whole town is coming? Well, you got to remember that Bethlehem is a little town. Some of you got it. All right, got it. A lot of family, that she would be coming back to her family. And so they would be abuzz as, as Naomi is coming back, right? They would be excited to see her. And you can get the picture in this passage, right? They're running out to see Naomi's here. And what's the first words out of her mouth? Don't call me Naomi. I'm bitter. Call me that. Call me that. Because God dealt bitterly with me. I went away full. Is that true? Uh, no. She didn't go away full, or she wouldn't have gone away. She had no food. And I came back empty. Is that true? No. Ruth is with you. Ruth, who just sacrificed her whole life to care for you. We are not good interpreters of our own circumstances. I went away full and I came back empty. And in the midst of all this, this bitterness, we have glimmers of hope, rays of sunshine. Could there be a brighter future for this family? The Lord had provided food. They had, as coincidence would have it, come back just in time for barley harvest. Wonder if that's going to be a factor in the future. You got to come back. I can't tell you what happens. But as we wrap up this morning, consider this as we leave. That's, you're, you know, there aren't numbers in the original writings, but it's broken up well here because you're, you're left with like a cliffhanger, right? They came back at the beginning of barley harvest. What's going to happen next? None of them could imagine. As we wrap up this morning, I want you to consider a couple things. You have almost no idea of the totality of what God is doing in everything that you go through. We label them good and bad, and some things are bitter, and some things are, are wonderful. But we have no idea of the totality of everything He's doing. But here is what I pray that you do know. God is sovereign. He sees it all. He knows it all. And He's orchestrating everything for a purpose. Imagine, if you will, that Naomi was told 
that Israel's greatest earthly king and the savior of the world were going to come because of this, through her line because of this famine, in a way. Imagine if Naomi got that information from God right out of the gate. Would that have helped her to endure? What do you think? Probably, maybe. Would she have believed it? Probably not. At the end of chapter 1, probably not. But it was no less true. It was true. She just didn't know it. God knew it. He knew what he was doing. God knew it and he was bringing it to pass. And he is good. He is sovereign and he is good. The Almighty is good. He is full of mercy, full of compassion. He is familiar with our sorrows and our griefs. Jesus himself endured all of them while he were, walked the earth. He was a man of sorrows. He is a merciful and sympathetic high priest. He laid down his life that we would have the hope of eternal life. He died that we might live. And if he did this for us, we can trust his goodness when there's no fruit on the vine. There's no herds in the stalls. And when we don't see the thing we want coming to pass, we can trust that he is good. He hasn't stopped being good just because you don't understand. And we can trust. I, I was thinking about, you know, breaking out in song. You know, you know that old hymn, Because He Lives? You know that one? Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. Because He Lives, All Fear Is Gone. Why? Because I know He holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. Right? <laughs> you want to sing it? All right, let's, let's, all right, let's sing that chorus. All right, here we go. Because, 